Oh, I, I cannot begin to tell you how I felt. Just everything just came up. Just my whole self-worth, confidence. And it was replaced by frustration, anger, annoyance, everything bad. Hello, and welcome to The Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. This week I'm really excited to bring you Derek Redmond. Derek is an international keynote speaker, he's a number one best-selling author and he's a gold medalist. Derek has so many lessons in life and leadership that he's willing to share with us today and the quality of his stories, they were just too good not to share. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Brought to you by our partners NAHT, the School Leaders Union and our wonderful sponsors Pearson and Two Simple Software. Enjoy this week's episode of the Olympic Mindset podcast. Don't forget to sign up and become a member of our community at theolympicmindsetpodcast.com. First of all, thank you, Derek Redmond, enigmatic, charismatic, and <laughs> all-round great guy. So thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. No, thanks for joining us, seriously. Nice. Um, good it's good fine. And it's been a pleasure talking to you in the build-up to this as well. So really, really excited to, to get a few nuggets from you today and yep. see what we can learn from you Yeah, and what others can take away and, and translate to their own setting. Perfect. Uh, so starting off straight away, yep. what does leadership look like to you? Leadership, that's a great question. Um, it's it's a bit like the chicken and the egg question, isn't it? What came first, you know, the, the chicken or the egg? So for me, leadership means a couple of things. One, it's that one person who's been, who's been given the task to to lead a team, an organisation, to get from one place where they are to another. And I think a good leader will always bring that team together uh, to do that. So it's not him. It's us. Mm. Uh, and for me, leadership is also somebody that makes everybody else in that team feel like leaders as well. Um, because I, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, um, how successful you are, how much experience you got, you need other people to help mm. push that success uh, forward in whatever you do. So for me, leadership isn't just about saying, right, I'm the boss, do as I say. It's about how do I help facilitate this group of people to perform the task better than anybody else? I think that's a really interesting point, the concept of everyone's a leader and facilitating the team towards a goal. Absolutely. It segues really nicely into my first question, which is please tell us about Tokyo 1991. Well, it's quite funny you say that because I was going to use that as an example. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or two fools. I don't know which one. So, you know, we, we took, so Tokyo 1991, we had a relay squad of six world-class 400 meter runners. Yeah. Uh, myself, Roger Black, Chris Akabusi, uh, John Regis, Addy Maffey and Mark Richardson. And that evening, team management picked the team and the order, me on the first leg, uh, Akabusi on the second leg, John Regis on the third leg and Roger on the fourth. Later on that evening, the four of us got together and said, 
that's a good order and it's what everyone would expect, but we don't think it's going to be good enough to win gold. But we had a conversation that led us to come up with a new order. Roger to me, to John, to Chris. We went and saw the two reserves. Guys, what do you think about this? This is our way of thinking. Went and saw the team managers. One of them was like, if you think it's going to give you the best chance, great. And the other one who happened to be the coach of our team wasn't as confident in us doing it. And I remember him saying, guys, you know, let's just stick to what we normally do. Good idea, good thought about it. Maybe we can do that next year, season after, whatever. And we were saying, look, no, this is going to give us the best chance of the gold. A conversation took part where we as a squad wanted to do one thing and he as the coach wanted to do something else. And one of his comebacks was, guys, I'm just trying to protect the silver medal. Well, we're trying to win the gold medal. That's the difference. Now, this was something we all took part in. So when it comes to leaders, technically, you could argue the fastest man in the relay team, who was Roger Black, he was the world silver medalist, who normally has the God-given right to run the last leg, because the norm is always to put your fastest man on the last leg, your second fastest man on the first leg, and the other two in the middle. In the end, um, the, uh, the coach allowed us to do it. We went on to win gold for the first time in 57 years. The Americans didn't win gold over a world or an Olympic competition. And we beat them one gold, they won silver. And we used to have a bit of a saying, when you come into the 4 by 4 squad, check your ego in at the door. It was one of the reasons, as uh, certainly back then, why the relay squad was as successful as it as it was. You know, you, you got the likes of myself, you got Rod Bratt, you got John Reed. You know, we had people like Phil Brown, Todd Bennett, Gary Cook, Brian Whitlock, you know, over the some really strong characters. Any one of those people I just named could be ahead of an organization with their confidence, their, um, their, their intelligence, their ability. You put that many people in one room, sometimes you're gonna think, oh my God, this is gonna explode. It's the dead opposite. We all respected each other. We all had faith, belief in ourselves and each other. Um, so everything we did was always decided by the team. Even the two reserves who weren't running, we needed their agreement that we were doing the right thing because we wanted to know, are we making, you know, are we looking at this the wrong way? Are we getting this right? Are we getting this wrong? And I remember Mark Richardson when we went into, uh, into their room and said, you know, what do you think about this? And he said one word that convinced me we got it right. I remember him just pausing and going, genius. <laughs> he said, this is genius. It's all I needed. You know, as far as I was concerned, we'd won the goal before we'd even stepped onto the track. And it's things like that that I think that makes great leaders. It's understanding it's not you, it's us. You know, one of my mentors a few years ago who sold his business for a rather large sum of money now lives out in Barbados and is enjoying life and so he should. He, he once said to me, he says, Derek, I don't know everything about this business. I just have the knack of employing right people that do know the things that I don't know and we can make this business work. And I figured, well, if he's saying he needs other people around him, then us mere mortals must need other people. And it's not a case of I, it's a case of, of we. So, yeah, so to me, that's the ultimate in leadership is, is creating that environment where you're pulling everybody together and you're giving everybody that role of being a fellow leader and between you all working out what is the right thing to, to make that team perform, you know, outperform all the other teams out there. Really interesting that you've, we've been able to articulate really all the complexities behind the team, mm -hmm. managing ego, managing big personalities. Obviously you've addressed the fact that you can have big, you believe you can have big personalities together in a room. Absolutely. You, you, you can. And, and it's also one of the important ingredients is understanding 
uh, each other. And I know we've we've talked about this and something we're both quite um, into, you know, is, is the psychometrics of, uh, you know, uh, of people. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm a massive believer in that. And it's understanding the way that people work and behave because we all have different work based behaviors. And you need to understand that because the way I can act and conduct myself, the perception to someone could be X, to someone else it could be Y, and to someone else it could be Z. But I'm doing exactly the same thing. So understanding how people operate, the way that they they think, act, react, is, a, is an important part of it. And I feel a good leader also will understand that and understand that people don't all think and act in exactly the same way. So you obviously have a, I, I know this, we've discussed it many times, you have a really good understanding of personality profiles. Yes. When you meet somebody, do you try to categorise them or do you try not to put somebody in a box or does it just naturally happen? I would say it more naturally happens. I don't try and preempt them. Um, and because I've been involved um, with psychometrics and, and personality profiles, if you want to look at that, and, and behaviour, uh, behaviours of people, then I'm, I'm in a position where I can start to look and say, this person is, is displaying this, this person is displaying this and this person. So I get an idea of, uh, you know, a brief idea of how to react with them and, and possibly get the best out of them. Um, and I'm going to have time to go into it, but there are some very simple, as you know, some simple telltale signs on people of, of what kind of personalities they have, what kind of behaviours they have. So if you're meeting somebody new, what kind of telltale signs do you look for? I don't look for anything. I just observe their behaviors and it's what they if you, if you like display to me personally i use something that's based around disc theory dominance influence steadiness and compliance uh half of the listeners have just fallen asleep now and i start going <laughs> into it um and you know you can tell someone who's very dominant someone who displays a lot of influence someone who's a lot more steady or someone who's more compliant by the, the way that they act, what they say, how they say it, how quick they respond, their body language in, in, in certain cases. And take a program like Dragon's Den. Mm -hmm. A lot of entrepreneurs display a lot of dominance. Somebody who displays a lot of dominance, they don't like chat. They want the facts, the figures, bottom line. So when you know you're talking with somebody like that, don't start asking them, how's the wife and kids and start waffling on about things. Make sure you've got all your facts know your stuff and say this is the bottom line and do it with confidence and when you watch something like dragon's den the people that really kind of crumble or the ones that don't know their facts i use that one as an example because most people have seen dragon's den and it's so if i'm coming into a room and we're meeting for the first time and we're due to have a you know talk about some possible work or whatever and, and you have that display we're not going to like you and i do sit and talk about families and this and sport and this and that we're going to get down to the nitty gritty mm. um, because that's just the way it's not right. It's not wrong. It's just the way that that particular person behaves. I actually have um, workshops where I uh, assess people, give them their own feedback. And we talk about the, the, the four different types of, of behaviors. And actually you don't just have one. You can have one, two or three, a mixture of three, but some might be stronger than others. Mm. We call it observable behaviours and it gives you an idea of how you can, you know, approach people and, and learn to understand. But not only that, it then can help you to learn how to manage those people. Because some people like to be told what to do. Some people you might need to kind of talk them in a way and suggest that they do it. 
you know, but it could be asking the same task. Gordon Ramsay, for argument's sake, will tell you to cook that at a certain temperature. Jamie Oliver would suggest it. You know, Mary Berry might actually put it on the thing and turn it and say, that's where that needs to be. They've all got the same result, but they've gone about it in a slightly different way. And it's just understanding how best to work with that person or people you're working with. I, that, that's fascinating to me. I, we've, I think we may have discussed this before. The book Surrounded by Idiots. Surrounded by Idiots, exactly. But that book for me is really insightful because it allows you to manage yourself as Absolutely. well as others. And Absolutely. ultimately life is about creating relationships, yeah. sustaining relationships, and whether we like it or not, managing our own ego and the egos of others. Absolutely. And that 1991 success for me is a massive example of an individual who you had every right to start that race as the second fastest in the team. Mm. Black had every right to finish that race. Yeah. Putting their ego aside and hearing other people and yeah. listening to Chris Akabusi, who can be quite a domineering personality Absolutely, type, yeah. telling you he's faster than you. Yeah. When you all know, yeah. Exactly. Statistically, he isn't. He isn't. And he was saying, I'm the man for the last job. Absolutely. Put me on that last leg. But the other interesting thing that you've got, got to remember about that relay team is that team was made up or that squad is made up of the six fastest guys over 400 metres in Great Britain. Mm. One other word to describe us is we're all rivals. We actually spend 99.9% .9 of the time training to kick each other's butts because we don't want to lose against each other. I want to be number one 400 metre run in the world, let alone Great Britain. So I don't want to be beaten by Roger. I don't want to be beaten by Andy Maffey or Mark Richardson. They don't want to be beaten by me. You've got um, Chris and John, who Chris is a 400 metre hurdler and John is predominantly, you know, was a 200 metre runner. Even worse, I don't want to be beaten by a part-time 400-meter runner. <laughs> yeah, he was a hurdler, right? So, uh, Chris was a hurdler yeah. and John was a 200-meter runner. Yeah, yeah. So our main aim in, in our own athletics career is to be the best. Mm. But then all of a sudden, we have to come together and act and perform like a team that has, has been training with each other all year round. And that leads really nicely into a point I think most companies and organisations struggle with. They're called the five dysfunctions of a team. Oh, the dysfunctions of a team. Yeah, that's it. I know right. it. Lencioni. Oh, good. Good knowledge. So obviously yeah. they are absence of trust, yeah. fear of conflict, yeah. lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, inattention to results. Absolutely. I know you're a very result-orientated person, obviously, the, the events and things you've committed your life to. But I think the absence of trust for me is massive there. Yep. You guys, obviously, we had illicitly it. trusted one another. Absolutely. You all had the same aim. Yeah. You all had the same desire. Yeah. And however you achieved it, it didn't matter because you trusted one another. Well, it's really funny because when Chris, um, uh, John and I were sharing a room and Chris and Roger were sharing a room because they were training partners anyway. And they came to us with this idea because they had had the conversation. Um, they started off the conversation in their own room. Uh, and then they came to us because Roger said, we can't talk about this without Derek and John being involved. They came to us, explained the conversation that they had, and it all stemmed from Chris saying, guys, I reckon I should run the last leg. Because in his 400-meter hurdles, Chris broke the British, uh, European and Commonwealth record, won a bronze medal, and in his words, ran a bad race. And I remember when Chris got the baton, he'd only run three steps, and I went with one. Because I knew Chris was going to do what he said. Because mm. Chris isn't the kind of person to go, yeah, I'm going to do this and not deliver. You know, I spent enough time training with Chris. I spent enough time traveling with Chris. I spent enough time competing against Chris. I'd spent enough time with Chris to know the kind of person that he is. And, and if Chris says, I can't do that, that's because he can't do it. And if Chris says, I can do it, funny enough, it's because he can do it. So when he said, you get me in this position, 
I will bring us this. There was no doubt, and I know Roger and John felt exactly, but there was no doubt in my heart's hearts he wasn't going to do this. So if we take that situation and try and apply it to, I'm sure many of our listeners will be in a situation where they're trying to convince a boss to allow them to run a project mm. or convince somebody of, of, of something else. But how does somebody convince someone to allow them to take a risk, to take a chance, to, to prove themselves? I, I think it, it, it's not just words, it's action as well. So that individual will have needed to have, if you like, already shown some metal that they are capable of doing said task. So um, this wasn't a case that he convinced you by speaking passionately. This was built up over a period of time. This was built up over a period of time. Right. Understanding and knowing Chris, racing Chris. I mean, this, this wasn't just, you know, oh, my name's Akabusa. Yeah, put me on the last leg. We knew Chris. We knew what he could do. We knew what he could deliver. This was a gold medal on the line here. Mm. The difference between, you know, being the best in the world and winning yet another silver. You know, it was more than money. It was, it, this was to be called the best team in the world. My success was in the hands of three other people because I couldn't do it on my own. So yes, I think, you know, a bit of a track record. And also if that person, you've got that faith and belief in them and they've got that confidence, sometimes you've got to let them go with it. And the final thing I will say is you also have to have that ability to sometimes do things differently. Don't do the same old thing over and over again. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think who is it who turned around and said his definition of insanity was to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. I know everyone's getting it's Einstein. Insane. It's Einstein, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I was told everyone thinks it's Einstein, but apparently it wasn't. I thought Derek it was Redmond. Einstein. Derek Redmond, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that handsome chap, Redmond. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, do you know, this story is fascinating to me because, particularly as, as somebody that got into management really early, management through football, non league football, and mm -hmm. then management in education, as you know. Yeah. I quite often would be surprised that people would suddenly come to a meeting and propose an idea and they, sometimes it might be battered away, sometimes mm -hmm. it might be adopted, the kind of resistance or the upset that they would, they would have. Yeah, yeah. And I think you've just touched a really important point for me. It's not about the proposal. It's not about how articulate you can be, how convincing you can be. It's built up over time. If your actions have not told that person that you're reliable, you follow through, you deliver on a promise, you're in, you know, your integrity yeah. is there. Yeah then somebody's not going to give you the chance to make Correct. You know, a really important yeah, yeah. decision or yeah. take a risk or yeah. contribute. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes that's something that particularly people going into leadership positions overlook. Mm. Ultimately, to be a leader for me is to be super credible. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah, we, we saw that today, you know, yeah. we're both saying about turning up on time. We're both trying to be earlier than yeah, the other absolutely, one. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that sums that kind of element of leadership to me. but it's all those little things that make you think you know what i'm going to take a punt in this person yeah you know and and that's why i'm saying it it can't just happen with you know bam first time first time you meet and good dinner you need to have that confidence in 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 that individual on all of those things that you were just talking about the integrity of those people you know um i've had the fortune of of um sharing a stage with sir clive woodward uh, he does a thing around teamship and one of the things that he always said is one of the things, one of his great bugbears was punctuality. If he says he's got a meeting at four o'clock, he expects everybody to turn up at 10 to four. Anything beyond 10 to four in his world, you're late. I've seen in athletics, I, I, um, twice I was team manager for a, just a couple of small meetings um, indoors. And you can see the people who I would prefer to spend my time with and give all my attention to because they were the people that were giving off 
behaviors that said they're here to be serious and they're taking this serious and one quick example i remember we arrived at it was for an indoor meeting or we arrived at the hotel brought them all downstairs and says right guys in two days times the meeting is you know this indoor meeting blah 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 anybody want to go down to the track today to do any last minute stuff so some hands went up so okay well we've arranged a coach and we're going to leave the coach uh leave for the you know uh the coach leave at two o'clock in the afternoon so i get down at half past one team manager there yeah couple of athletes already sitting there with their kit bags, water, ready to get down. Now, in the team meeting, when I said how many people are coming, maybe 15, 20 people. In the end, coach leaves with about half a dozen people on this coach. So the other girl, Alison, she went down with them and I said, I'll stay behind. Then at about half past two, three or four more, oh, what's happening? It's two o'clock. Right, get them in a cab, get them in a cab. Quarter three, a couple of more ambled down. This went on. In the end, I'm going backwards and forwards, getting, sorting out cabs to get everybody down. So now we've gone down to the track and everybody's there. Anybody else? Sorry, you've missed it. So now, rather than everybody coming back together, because the people who got there early, they finished all their preparations and their warm-up and whatever, they, they now want to come back. So now the other girl, team manager, she's ferrying people backwards and forwards while I'm waiting at the track for the others because we're you know, part of the team management, you've got to, got to do that. That told me something. It touched, it showed me that those people who just ambled up whenever, really their heart's not in it. Their mind's not really in what they're doing. And, and if, if I was their boss at work, that would show me something, that they're not 100% committed. Funny enough, the people who took it more serious perform better. I want to talk about accountability now because you've, you've led really nicely into that. Do you mm. feel sometimes... People like to make excuses for things or make excuses too readily. So, for example, that turning up on time, they may well have had a very legitimate reason. The shower ran cold and couldn't find their shoes. But ultimately, by removing those excuses and by holding yourself accountable, that doesn't happen. I feel like sometimes as leaders, a lot of people will make an excuse or on their journey to leadership, they'll make mm. excuses. Oh, yeah, there's definitely excuses for why they haven't reached certain levels. And, you know, going back to your point of there may have been legitimate reasons for, for yeah. being late. But for me, it'd be simple. Yeah, it's that reception. Um, don't remember the British team manager. Can you tell him I'm going to be 10 minutes late because my shower was cold? Um, the dog ate my homework. Yeah. Whatever excuse it is, in this day and age, yeah. and even then, you can let somebody know. You sent me a message saying, Derek, I've arrived early. I'm setting up in the room, blah, blah, blah. I sent you a message, five minutes away. There is a million and one reasons why a plan may not happen the way that we want because of outside influences. But it's how you go about dealing with that. NHT really made me feel like I had a community of people around me that I could go to for support. And last summer I discovered um, Leaders for Racial Equality and it really made me feel like I wasn't alone, which is what NHT is all about. And I really am so thankful to them for that because I was at a point where I was like, I don't know whether I want to carry on doing that. But NHT, everybody that I've spoken to there, if I've had to ring the phone line or speak to someone personally, they've always just got it and they've just understood. And that's really important to me. And it's made a massive, massive difference. NAHT is here to defend and promote the rights of all school leaders. So together, we can create a better education system for educationalists and learners alike. For more information, email us at joinus at naht.org.uk or call us on 0300 
3033. How important is communication to you? Massive. Oh, you, you cannot you cannot put a level on how important communication is. And it's something we can all do. We just don't do it enough. I'll give you a, a, a great example. If you're driving home and you're on the phone to your wife and you say, yeah, hi, but I'm, I'm heading down the M5. I'm going to be two hours. Um, so I'll be home by nine. And nine o'clock comes. You're not there. Half nine, 10 o'clock, half 10. Your wife's going to be like, God, where is he? Where's Tommy? Can't get you on the phone. Naturally, she's going to think something bad has happened. You might have stopped off a, a service station and it was that. You can't get out the service station, this and that. But the fact, just by picking up the phone and saying, oh, you're not going to believe this, X, Y, Z has happened, her view and perception completely changed. And that's just from a simple conversation. Now, I know it's a simple situation, but it's amazing what 25, 30 or 100 words can do to somebody in the right situation. You know, if, you, if you want to put that into the workplace... There are people that like to um, celebrate success by being, you know, oh, Dominic, best salesman of the month today, stand up, Dominic, and you get awarded a bottle of champagne or something. Some people love that kind of thing. Other people think, oh, God, I couldn't think of anything anything worse. Yeah. And actually, you could be someone who wants that attention. You could be someone who's just walking down the corridor and uh, the boss comes in, Dominic, can I have a quick word? Absolutely brilliant what you did the other week, you know, or the other month. Fantastic, you know, keep up the good work. Uh, I know of a CEO, she understood the way people operated and she used to do this and, and celebrate success of people. And with one particular um, employee, she just used to get a card, you know, like a postcard and just write a message to her. And the woman used to come in and see this you know, and think, oh my God. And she said, that was the best thing. Because she said, my boss took five minutes out of her time to hand write a little card for me to say congratulations well done on the deal or whatever it goes that means more than any bonus would ever ever mean to me so communication not just for good but also if you're not you know things aren't going well you've got to you know be able to communicate with people it's 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 paramount it's paramount so before, before we move on to the next step this is a really nice point to talk about three habits you hold quite dear to you so we've touched on communication there obviously that's probably going to be when judging by yeah. your reaction. Yeah. What other kind of values do you hold dear to you when, or habits do you hold dear to you when you're managing other people, when you're working with others? Um, punctuality is one for me. The other one of the other ones for me, uh, I'll put it under promise, people who promise things and don't deliver. Now, I'm not saying you must deliver, but there's a lot of people that talk a good game and can't back it up. You don't, I don't expect somebody to succeed every time. I didn't. I've lost more races than I've won. Michael Jordan has said he has missed more um, at the end. I'm trying to think how he phased game it. Game-winning shots. He, he's missed more game-winning shots than he's actually made. Yeah. But he's made so many that he's become synonymous for winning games. So th th that would be the three things for me. Failure's become a bit of a dirty word, particularly in education, but I know mm. in other sectors too. Um, yeah. I feel like sometimes we we have this huge fear of failure yeah, yeah. and you can see it in certain people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, now we're going to lead on to uh, 1992 yeah. and how failure led to something far greater than yeah. winning any race could have. 
Yeah. Um, yes. You know, failure is one of these these words that you say people are scared of. My dad, and you know, I quote my dad quite a lot and things. I'm very close to my dad. And as I always describe him, he's my Yoda. He's not short, green and hairy and got funny ears. But <laughs> I'm going to tell you a little story. I was 16 years of age. I'm ranked number two in the country. Number one is a guy called Kurt Morby from Lincolnshire. I go up and my dad goes, here's your race, Derek. He went, ah. I said, what? He went, look who's in the lane outside you. Kurt Morby. Now, he's beaten me nine times already that season. I knew the back of his head better than his barber did. That's how many times I'd never got anywhere near this kid. So my coach said, you know what, Derek? Don't worry about it. We're going to do something different today. What we're going to do? He says, for the first 200, I want you to run a lot quicker than you've ever run before. Forget the normal pacing that you do. Just go out for it. Because whenever you race Kurt, by the time you get to 200, halfway around, he's already way in front and he's won the race. And by the time you get to 300 metres, game over. He says, I want you to be with Kurt Morby with 100 metres to go. Let's see. Let's test his metal. Let's see what this kid's made of. I've gone, okay, okay. And my dad could see I was really nervous. So I'm getting warming up for the race and I'm getting ready to report for the race. And I'm a bundle of nerves. My dad said, why are you so nervous? I said, well, what do you mean? I've got racing Kurt and now I've got to run this race I've never even trained for. I don't know what I'm doing, Dad. I don't know. He says, you're not going to lose this race. And I went, sorry. He goes, you're not going to lose this race. One of two things are going to happen. You're either going to finish first or you're going to learn something. If you don't finish first and you don't learn anything, then you can tell me you've lost the race. So it comes to the race, gun goes, I go off like a scared rabbit. I run the first 200 like it's a 200 meter race. And I'm way out in front. And I'm, I, then I got to 200 for, I remember thinking, I've got another 200 to go. <laughs> I get to 300 and I'm still in the lead. But by the time I've done 300, 310 metres, I am gassed out. I have got nothing left. I'm way out in front and I'm just staggering down the home, for a, a home straight, hoping that the line comes to me rather than me go to the line. And I could just sense Kurt coming back, coming back, and we're getting closer and closer. And in the end, he just gets his nose in front of me, and we both lunge for the line. And he got me on the dip. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. And I warm down and all that sort of stuff, and I get over the fact that I've been beaten by him yet again. And my dad said to me, did you learn anything from that race? I mean, what do you mean? He goes, what did you learn? And we had a bit of discussion, and I learned that I could run the first 200 quicker than I normally do. Maybe not as at such a suicidal pace as I did in that race, but I could go quicker, afford to go quicker and still have enough strength uh, for the home straight. We went back into training and we decided to change the way that I run, you know, 400 and the, the way that I run the first 200, run a few races. I didn't race Kurt and we adopted this new style. Next time I raced Kurt, I beat him and he never beat me again. And the message that comes from that is, is sometimes through failure, you can learn. Ask the question, why did that fail? What did I do that made that go wrong? Or what didn't I do to make that go wrong? Put that right and try it again. At Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report 
and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. Apple and um, BlackBerry. Many years ago, BlackBerry was the phones to have yeah, with the old I keyboard. Remember, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, everybody, and then Apple oh, came along. really old. Yes, yeah, I was just thinking, I'm just saying. What's a BlackBerry? You And everyone, uh, BlackBerry was saying, these were the phones for all yeah. business users. They, all, they want a keyboard, they want a keyboard. Apple came out with their first phone. I know, no, it won't catch on, it won't catch on. Where's BlackBerry now? Apple had that. The only people that competed with um, with them who said, yeah, we need to jump on this bandwagon was Samsung. But BlackBerry were adamant that their phones were the best phones and people will always want an actual keyboard. And they stuck with it. And they, they purposely chose not to go down the route of having touchscreen. Now they were a few years ago trying to, but too late. They're so far behind, um, you know, behind uh, Apple, they will never, ever catch, you know, catch them up again. So, you know, failure is a good thing. And, you know, you, you, know, and it, you did, you know, mention Barcelona. And at the time I thought I failed mm. because I went there to win a medal. I saw your interview after the race. You weren't happy. Not a happy, <laughs> not a happy bunny at all. I didn't even want to do that interview. Um, I did think that was quite insensitive, by the way. Yes. Throw a microphone in your face. After TV, that. isn't it? It's, it's happened there, and then they want to get that original. It's quite funny. I've never seen you so petulant. <laughs> I wasn't happy at all. I, you know, I, I apologise uh, to Brendan Foster. Who <laughs> did you? Did you apologise? <laughs> because, but he understood it. You yeah. know, um, and a uh, great guy. We've had conversation. We met up uh, a few couple of years ago. A few years ago, I happened to be up his neck of the woods, and I said, "Well, you're around." We, we caught up, and we were laughing and joking about it and stuff, but. Before you go into the, to what happened, can you set the scene for what it's like in a stadium before a semi-final in an Olympic Games? I mean, what does it feel like? What does it sound like? <coughs> I'm fascinated to hear kind of yeah the emotions behind the builder and how you feel at the starting blocks. Well, that's race number three because I've already run the you know two days prior to that was the heat right. The day before that was the second round and I won both of those. Um, so day three, race three is the semi-final. So I'm already in a good headspace because I've won the first two rounds. I was the fastest qualifier from in the heats, one of the fastest qualifiers in the second round. Confidence is high. Everything's going well. I've not actually stretched my legs yet because I've run under part because I only need to do was to qualify. Okay, so, so you're holding something back. Yeah, because there was no need to go flat out because breaking a world record in the heat doesn't give you a gold medal. It just gets you into the next round. So why run flat out if you don't need to? Mm. Um, the longer the distance, the easier it is to be able to do that. The shorter the distance, it's not quite as easy. But if you look at someone like Bolt, he run 10-1 or something like that in the heat, or run nine, and they get quicker and progressively quicker, as we would do. And I ran two times, very similar, 45-0-3 and 45-0-2. I could have done it in wellies. I felt that good, and I just did enough to win them both. Semi-final, the game plan was, okay, it's uh, the only part of the race, actually, let me explain this. The only part of the race I would run like a final would be the first 200. So I always would run the first 200 like it was a final. And then looking around, I'd make a decision on how much I needed to continue and build on that. Or if I could sort of just, just trot, into the trot in and lean back a little bit and you see athletes looking around and making sure. So you warm up on the warm-up track, all that. You go through all the process, you come onto the track. 
confidence is good. There's a full stadium. It's seven o'clock in the evening. It's lovely weather. I'm in the Olympic semi-final. I'm one of the favourites, not only for that race, but to win a medal. Loud? The, the noise? Uh, yeah, but you kind of block all that out. You know, for me, I was at work. This is this is work. So yes, that noise is all there. So stress management was something you did all the way through. Oh then. yeah, I could manage my stress pretty well. Um, and if I was to say to you, the race was at, I think it was 7.45, it was, it was August 1st, 7.45 p.m. Not my, gonna forget that. So at 6.45, we have to report for the race on the warm-up track. You're in a room, well, it was then there were like little tents, half the size of this room. And the only other seven people in that room, the other seven guys you're running against. And you are locked in that room basically for about 30 minutes. Sounds so like a nightmare. Do you imagine you're in a room with yeah. the eight guys you're running against, no TV, no radio, you've got your headphones, book if you read what, and you're just locked in a room with the other seven guys you're running against. Four of you ain't making it through. Four of you are. And at that point, you think you're going to make it through, but you don't know you're going to make it through. That's where the races can be won and lost. Forget how, what happens out on the track. It's what happens in that warm-up. How do you manage your mindset in that situation? There's so many people at the moment in real high-pressure jobs going through you know, really difficult times and they're struggling to, to manage their mindset. So I'm, I'm thinking this might yeah. be something really- For me, and I can only talk for me in that scenario back then, it was confidence. Uh, another saying that my dad always used to say to me, there's a thin line between confidence and arrogance, and you've got to walk that damn line. You've got to be so confident. And again, we come down to perception that some people are going to think you're arrogant, but it's confidence because- you know when you're being arrogant and you know when it's pure confidence. Some people, their line might be here, yours might be here, but you've got to walk that line. So you've got to have 99.99999% recurring confidence. You can't have anything less. You've got to be confident knowing that you've done the work, you're in great shape, you've had the right advice. You know, up and up, when you get into the semi-final, you can pretty much control what lanes you get. So the first race is done randomly. But depending on where you finish in the in that first race will determine what not exact lane but whether you get one of the favorable lanes yeah. three four five or six or if you don't run as well but you qualify you'll get one two seven or eight yeah. so i would always win my rounds to make sure i was in the draw for lane three four five or six so i knew i've got a favorable lane i you know i become quite selfish at that point because this moment is about me everything my coaches and family and friends have done has got me to that point but when i walk onto that track and i'm in that lane that's one meter or whatever meter wide 400 meters long there ain't nobody can do anything else for me it's down to me because i'm the one who's now got to go out and to use a phrase that i hate execute um so you know i was always good at getting my mind right and being able to just focus on the job and forget what's going on around me, whether it's the noise, whether it's because when in that warm up scenario, you've got Americans being too, yeah, I'm going to kick your butt, man. You ain't coming through. I'm going to kick your butt. You get that in the oh, of course you do. You get people trying to hide your spikes. You get people trying to psych you out, stare you in the eyes, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll get, I remember walking. I'm genuinely in, shocked to hear that. No, you get people, you walk into the tent and they'll give it the old. And they'll try and follow you around and they'll steer you out. And I remember Akabusi saying to me once, uh, uh, a Europeans, again, when Roger and I were the young pups, he goes, when you go into the core room, the East Germans, the Russians, they're going to 
bump into your shoulder. They're going to try and psych you out. They're going to try and get under your skin. And he said to me, I remember this, he said, if, if one of them athletes step to you, Derek, and start eyeing you out, you take a step and you just ball, I ball them out. We got your backs. We're there. And if they take two steps, you take two steps. And if you start to sweat and your sweat runs down, make it run up so they can't see you're nervous. <laughs> I never forget that conversation with Chris. And it happens. Darren Clark, Australian guy, Olympic um, finalist twice, finished fourth in the Olympics twice at World Championships. As we're walking from that call room yeah. to the track, said to me, uh, Derek, I'd never beaten him at this time. He said, Derek, um, and he wasn't in great shape, and I was. He went, We've done a bit of training together over the months leading up to it. He went, let's run this together like one of our training sessions. Um, you know, let's work off of each other. We'll, we'll qualify first and second. I went, yeah, all right, Darren. I won the semi. He came last. About an hour before that, or 45 minutes before that, he came up to me and went, oh, they've changed the lanes. You're in lane eight. And I went, still 400 metres once round. Doesn't bother me, mate. So they try and people, athletes get into your head. And if they're here and you're here, they can't climb to here. But what they can do mentally is bring you from there to there. So you've got to stop them from doing that because that's easy to do to lose that confidence from there and drop it but if you haven't got it it's very hard to do in an hour yeah so we're in that scenario we come out of the warm-up trap we come onto the track 10 minutes for whatever you're setting your starting blocks up long jumps going on or triple jump javelin this that other things and you're just in the zone setting your blocks up all that sort of stuff and then the whistle goes and you strip off and you're just standing behind your blocks and you've got 60 70 000 people in the stadium millions watching which you don't even think about um the only two people i am thinking about or i know in the stadium is my coach and my dad who are at the 200 meter mark quite high up and i know what i've got to do i know exactly what i've got to do my i know my race is broken down into one to for me three sectors in that particular race um and all i'm concentrating on for the first part of the race is the first sector the first 90 meters that's all that's important as I'm running that, then the rest of the race will unfold and I'll go into the different sectors. And I'm just thinking about all the stuff I've got to do, this and that, trying to stay calm, on your marks, into the blocks, settling down. And at that point, I stare at one piece of the track, just one little bit, might be a little mark, a little spot, whatever. And I just stare at that and I concentrate on that, but I'm listening for the starter. And you've got a speaker at the end of your starting blocks. And then you hear set and you get into the set position. I always held used to hold my breath in the set position. And then I'm waiting for the B, to use Linford's quote, the B of the bang, not the G of the bang. Because if you go on the G, slow. Not so bad in the 400, but certainly in 100. You went a little earlier than the B in the... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we'll leave that, yeah, yeah. And the gun goes, and you're into your running. I know I've got to do it. And then that's it. Everything else is just... I, I could be running for a bus. I could be running for my club. It doesn't matter, I'm running 400 metres. And one of the things I always say to people, people can put pressure on themselves when they don't need to. I prepare the same for running for my club as I did for an Olympic final, because I'm running exactly the same distance. I'm going through the same process. The only difference is, is what that race is worth at the end of it. There's a real good story. I think it was 91 trials for the World Championships. They're in Birmingham. And there was a room where you get your massage and stretching. So around the outside were the physio benches. And in the middle of the room where all the athletes are doing their stretching. So the 100 meter runners were ahead of us. So I'm getting massaged. The 100 meter finalists, seven of them are in this room. The only one that's not in there is Linford. So I'm here at the back of the room 
my master, a guy called Johnny Davis, and he's working for legs and doing all the stuff. All of a sudden, there's a door over there. Bam! Slammed open on purpose. Everyone looks at the door, as you would. Standing in the door, carved out of granite, was Linford. He's there like that. He's looking like this. He was a big guy. He was a big old unit. Big old lump. And he just looked in the room. Everyone's gone quiet now. And he's took one step in the room. He's looked around and he's gone. I don't know why you guys are bothering to warm up because you're only warming up to see who's going to finish in second place. And he walks out the room. And everyone goes, ah, Linford, yeah, yeah. And I turned to John and went, typical Linford. And my master went, yeah, 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 but wait for it. I went, what? He went, just put your head back down and, and wait for it. Don't worry, it's coming. All of a sudden you hear from the room, well, I don't know what you're laughing at because I'm finishing second. No, you're not, I'm finishing second. No, you're not. And they had a discussion, a bit of a laugh about who was going to finish second. Guess who won the race? Yeah, I can imagine. So there's that walking that fine line between confidence and arrogance. A lot of people said, what an arrogant so-and-so. Mm. But he wasn't because he knew what he was doing. And that was part of his whole game plan. To beat them mentally as well as physically. Winning, succeeding. How much mentality goes behind that? You've obviously heard the term Olympic mindset. Yeah, it's, I, I have a thing called Olympic mindset program. Do you? I actually Talk to deliver, us about that for a second. I, I deliver a program that, that talks about some of the facets that helps people create that Olympic mindset. Because I believe and this comes on to something that we've mentioned, and I'm sure you've got in your question about nature and nurture, that you can develop a much stronger mindset. You can develop a positive mindset because a lot of us rely on our mindsets on what we've done in the past and what other people have done in the past, not what we think we can do. Mm. Do you think Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk think in that way? Do you think they've ever thought in that way? Because, um, or the... The, I don't know who owns Deliveroo or who owns Airbnb. They have taken um, industries that's been around for years and years and years and years and just gone about them in a different way. If you look at Deliveroo, the world's biggest food delivery service, and they don't own a restaurant. Airbnb, the biggest hoteliers in the world, and they don't own a building. You know, And so sometimes... It's not what you do, it's how you go about doing it. And I, and I certainly believe you can develop that Olympic mindset and come up with ways of being mentally stronger, um, thinking in, in different ways, developing that confidence. Um, and all these things can be developed, not to take you from nothing to something, in some cases it might, but certainly can help you improve and change the way that you, you think and, and go about things in a, in a, in a mental it's quite often said that the most damaging sentence or phrase used in any business is this is the way we've always done, done it. it absolutely and yeah. the amount of people i work with as well or i've crossed paths with obviously i've done a bit of consultancy outside of education yeah. and you meet with people and you might propose an idea and they say mm. oh somebody already does that yeah guess what you're saying there is that don't be afraid don't to be, be unoriginal, unoriginal. correct but do it differently um so let's go back to the olympic mindset there are roughly six and a half billion people in the world roughly every four years of the olympic games at present you're talking somewhere in the region of 18 to 20,000 people will compete in an olympic games let's call it 19,000 that's how many people will go to an olympic games mm -hmm. out of those 19,000 people there are roughly 
350 to 360 gold medals to be won. So out of 18,000 people, only 355 are going away with a gold medal. Now, every Olympian, that's 18,000 people, dedicate their lives. They, you know, dedicate everything about their lives in pursuit of winning a gold medal. We're not daft. We know there's only a small amount of gold medals, but it doesn't stop any one of them dedicating their lives in pursuit of winning a gold medal because you just don't know what's going to happen on that day. That is a mindset that I would love to get into everybody in this world. If you had to give me, I don't know, three, four, five features of that mindset that you can mm -hmm. see past adversity, can push themselves to a level that I can't even work out what percentage that would be of, yeah. of a population can achieve, what would the three or four features of that mindset? Great question. Um, hunger. Okay. Desire. Um, certainly that, that, that belief that you can, you know, you, you can achieve it. And that belief that anything is, is possible. Um, the ability to, to, to forget what you're hearing from other people and, and reading statistics, um, you know, and just knowing that today could be my day. Today could be my day. You know, if you take my event, Michael Johnson held the world record. There was a time he wasn't the world record holder. And I remember talking to my daughter once and she was competing in Birmingham and she made the final of the 300 meters at English school. Oh my God, this girl's quicker, this girl's quicker. I said, they're quicker at that moment. How do you know in two and a half hours time, you're not going to run a personal best and be even quicker than them? So don't give up. This is a new race. This is a new time. Everything you've done is in the past. Think about what could happen today. Think about running half a second quicker, a second quicker, whatever. Think about she ended up finishing second and smashing her personal best. And she was like the fifth thousand on paper. Uh, I had the job of giving the medals at that. And it was difficult to hold the tears back, you know, my daughter in second place. But so having that ability to be able to shut out what other people are saying, I go back to some of these businesses and people think Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are crazy, you know, and they must have, you, you, you take Apple. Can you imagine Steve Jobs going into a boardroom saying, I've got this fantastic idea. I'm going to call it an iPad and it's about the size of an A4 piece of paper and you're going to swipe your hand up and down and things are going to move and you can press this and things are people are going, right, what have you been smoking, my friend? But he had vision and he wasn't going to allow people's inability to have the same vision as him stop him. Now, if it hadn't have worked, at least he could have said, you know what, I tried and it didn't work. But if I hadn't tried, I would have never have known. And that's the difference. So these are the sort of things, I don't know how you categorize that, but these are some of the ingredients that I would, would, would want to give. I think what you're talking about there is having a purpose, having a goal. Uh, yeah, a purpose, but yeah, self-worth. As a leader, purpose. communicating yeah. that to others, mm -hmm. because you've touched on communication earlier with, with a few stories, but essentially communication is followed up with credibility, yeah. authenticity, again, yeah. integrity. Yeah. So I feel like this concoction of a person that we're starting to talk about and create is somebody that you know, not only would you want to work with them, you'd want them to be your best mate. You'd want to spend time with you'd them. You'd want to spend time with them. You want to learn, and what, you can develop. All you're this. describing that what I would call an eternal optimist, somebody that Possibly, only ever sees yeah. the positivity in a situation. I, I mean, I'm a little bit like that. I mean, is that half empty or is that half full? You know, there's that there's that obvious story, and I am definitely a half full man. Now, that comes with its um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, with its negativities as well, because that person can all 
can, could be seen as not taking situations serious enough. Oh, he's always going to think we can achieve that. He's not being serious. Actually, he or she is, because that's just the way that their mind is wired. You know, it may not happen, but they believe it can happen. And there's two different things there. I used to go into every race thinking I'm going to break to try and break the world record. I never broke the world record, but if I didn't try and break it, I would have never broken it. One of the best gimmicks I've seen at a conference is a speaker went in, and I was speaking in it as an American guy. Uh, I was at States, was in um, Las Vegas, uh, Caesar's Palace. I had an audience of about know, seven, eight thousand people. And the guy who was on before me, he was all about motivation, this and that. And under one chair, no one knew this, he had put $100 in an envelope, stuck it under the chair. I don't know what chair it was. And um, he's sitting there talking this and that. And he said, if you want something in your life, you have to get off your backside. He's going, earn it. Anyway, everyone stand up. If you want to do something, I want to see everyone who really wants to earn, you know, wants to, I want everyone to get off their backside right now. And, you know, most people sat up and he goes, right, all of you are standing up. Turn your chair upside down. Is there an envelope under your chair? No, 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 no. no. Oh, yes, there is. General, what's your name? Dominic. Dominic, bring that envelope and come up on stage. Runs up on stage. Where's your name? Where are you from? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Okay, Dominic, open that envelope. What's in there? It's 100 pounds. See if you get up off your backside. You never know what you can have. And it, <laughs> money yeah it's great just very gimmicky but a simple simple you know a simple message and it doesn't mean it's always going to work just because the other six and a half seven thousand people got up and didn't do it doesn't mean next time it won't be them at too simple we know that school improvement planning and self-evaluation can be pretty time consuming so we've teamed up with former Ofsted inspector Clive Davies OBE to support you through the process with Inspection Coach and Improvement Hub. Inspection Coach and Improvement Hub blend together seamlessly, dramatically reducing the time and effort involved in self-evaluation and improvement planning, taking the pressure off you and your team. Inspection Coach is your virtual inspector, guiding you through the entire inspection process, from making judgments to success criteria and attaching evidence. And during self-evaluation, Improvement Hub suggests one of thousands of improvement plan actions written by our inspection team, specifically targeted to meet key elements of the latest Ofsted framework. Book your demo today at twosimple.com forward slash Olympic Mindset. It's too simple. So, so we were talking about that obviously the race and preparing for it. So yeah, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's work. I think there's two types of Olympians. There's those who are just pleased to have made it and to represent their country and compete at said Olympics, which is great. And there are a fortunate group of athletes who are actually really uh, got a chance of coming back with a medal. I used to put myself in that category, rightly or wrongly. Some people may think that I had no chance. Some people think I had you know, a great chance. So for me, it was always a case of, 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 of believing that I had a, a chance of, of, of winning a medal. So 
my for me going to an olympic games was always about it being work it wasn't i'm not here for the fun of it it was it was work and i had all these things i had to go through and i'm not here just for you know for the hell of it i made the team making the olympic team for me was the start where for some people it was the end it was what they aspired to do and as i say nothing wrong with that for me to be olympic champion i've got to be at the olympic games anyway so that's how i, I kind of looked at it so that semi-final was just about going through all the things I had to do, say from the warm-up to setting my blocks up to the start and all that and the race going off and the race going and the gun went and me running the first 90 metres and everything going, you know, going well. And I've run the first 90 metres, so if you like, phase one has worked. Going into the back straight, I'm now into phase two of my race. That's unfolding very well. Down the back straight, I hear a funny pop, internal noise. And I heard this funny noise and... My first thought was I wasn't concentrating. Um, and I remember saying to myself, come on, man, concentrate. Because when you're, to coin another phrase, in the zone, and you're, you don't hear what's going on in the crowd. You can hear an overall murmur and the ch crowd cheering, but you can't pick out individual, not, you know, who said to me, did you hear me? No, I mean, I, of course I didn't hear you. Yeah. My mum always used to say that, did you hear me cheering? No, mum, I did, sorry. You know, 100,000 people say, no, I didn't hear you. Uh, <laughs> um, and... But because I heard this distinctive noise, I thought I wasn't concentrating. So I carried on running. And then about three or four strides later, I felt the pain and obviously instinctively knew it was a hamstring. And I grabbed the back of my leg and I won't say what I said, but it was something along the line as, ouch, oh dear, I think I've pulled my hamstring. Um, it could have been slightly stronger than that, but that was the essence of the conversation. And it's painful. I hit the deck like a sack of spuds and I was in pain and, oh, I, I cannot begin to tell you how I felt. Just everything just came up. Just my whole self-worth, confidence, oh, just depleted. And it was replaced by frustration, anger, annoyance, everything bad. Um, and I just remember slapping the track and, oh, why the hell me? And again, I'm... As, as my kids used to say when they were younger, I was effing and jeffing. <laughs> and I just, oh, it was just, ah, oh, it's awful. And this happened for about 15 seconds. And then all of a sudden, it was like somebody went, and I remember I'm in the Olympic semi final. And I remember sort of, I'm lying on the track and I remember panicking and looking to see where the athletes were. They've now got about 120 meters to go there or there, and they're on their way. And instantly the thought that came through my head, it's the first four to qualify. If you get up now and start running, you'll catch it. We could at least finish fourth. And that was the mindset that I was in. And that's what got me to my feet. And I start hobbling and I hobble 50 meters. And even, so, and then I, and that's at the 200 meter mark. And even at the 200 meter mark in my head, I'm catching these guys. And I looked across the track, across the field, across the track to see how much I was gaining on these guys. And you're laughing as I'm saying this. And it is funny, even I'm smiling. And the track was empty, obviously. This is the eternal optimist. We're talking Absolutely. About. This is the Olympic mindset. Yeah. And they've all finished. And it was at the 200 metre mark that it hit me that the race was over. I'm not even going to make the final, let alone battle it out for a medal. So the next thought that went through my head was, I've got two choices. I can either stop and walk off, or I could finish the race. And I decided I wanted to finish the race. And the reason why I wanted to finish the race is because I didn't want to be beaten by the Olympics again. So if we pause there, 
rewind four years prior to that, my first Olympics was in Seoul, Korea. I was ranked three in the world, expected to win a medal in the relay, and I had an outside chance of winning a bronze medal in the individual. And I snapped an Achilles tendon warming up for the first round of the 400. So I didn't even make it into the Olympic Stadium and attempt to compete in the 400 metres. And back then I vowed in four years' time in Barcelona, I'd win two goals, one in the individual, one in a, in, in a four by four. So fast forward back to the 200 metre mark in that semi-final back in Barcelona, my decision was I'm going to finish this race because I don't want to be beaten by the Olympics again. And I figured, and this is that Olympic mindset, that if I finished eighth, I could live with finishing eighth and getting knocked out in the semi-final because that gives me something to build on for the next Olympic Games. But I couldn't finish with not finishing at all. And that's why I continued to hobble around. It was selfish. It was for me. It wasn't for Queen and Country. It wasn't for my family. It wasn't for Team GB. It was for me and to be able to live the rest of my life knowing that that's the best I could have done. The last thing I expected with 100 meters to go was to see my dad, you know, on the track and he had worked his way around and could see what I was doing. Good turn of pace from Jim. It was a good turn of pace for Mel, man. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing was his original agenda was to stop me finishing because he wasn't daft. He knew the sport. He was sitting next to my coach. We all knew it was a hamstring. But we didn't know how severe it was. And there was a chance that five, six, seven days later when the relay was going to be that I could still take part in the relay with treatment and stuff. So he wanted to stop me from damaging it anymore. And that was his main aim. And he, you know, I'd fought off some officials and medical people and this and that. And then he came on, I was just about to fight him. I said, Derek, it's me, it's me, it's me. And um, I remember him saying, he said, you don't have to do this, you don't have to do this. Get me back into lane five. I'm going to finish this. In race, shouting and swearing at my old man, which... I have to say, I've never been able to shout and swear at my dad and get away with it. <laughs> that was the one and only time. <laughs> and he said, okay, okay, okay we'll, I'll get you back into lane five and we'll finish together. And, you know, we finished the race and, and the rest is history. So that was pretty much how that all unfolded, why I did what I did and what it meant for me, you know, to, to do that. And to this day, I'm glad I finished the race um, because, you know, it was a personal thing. This was something that I had to do for me. And I know it's something that you, you were going to pick up on about the amount of criticism that it's had. And it's had some, as everything does in life. Um, I don't give monkeys. You know, that I live my life. And if I hadn't have done what I did 30 plus years ago, my life would, would have been totally different. My mental mindset would have been different. I feel like we live in a time of social media now, as, as we know. Massively, yeah. Luckily, both of us kind of missed the peak of that as a child. Yeah. I think a really important thing we should talk about is how you dealt with the level of criticism you received. Mm -hmm. And any advice you give to any listeners potentially receiving or going to receive inevitably some sort of abuse online or, or in person, how do you ignore those voices <laughs> and how do you stay in your lane? I, I mean, for me, you're right. We didn't grow up with you know, social media in, you know, in, um, God, we sound like a bunch of old fossils, don't we? But we didn't grow up with social media, you know, when Instagram was around in 1992, no. you know, so we didn't well, get we, all that. The abuse would have been relentless, right? Um, it wouldn't have been one or two critics. It, it would have been, been a thousand people. I mean, I get it. I see it now on, you know, I mean, it comes up on my timeline, this and that, and, 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 and you know, you read all the comments and 
99.9% are absolutely brilliant. I have people sending me emails, messages, comments saying, oh my God, I wasn't even born when that happened. And this so-and-so showed me this. I didn't know who you were. What a great thing to do. But then there's the other one. Oh, what an idiot should have said that. Those, those people possibly have no idea what it takes to compete. We all, you're always going to get armchair critics. And whether it's in business, well, if I ran this business, I wouldn't do that. I'd do this. Well, go and start your own business then. No one's stopping you. Put your money where your mouth is. But they won't. And there are people that thrive on criticising others because actually they don't have the kahunas to go out and do it themselves. Yeah, um, I think. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's part of it. The second part of it is, is you've got to be, you know, part of that Olympic mindset is having that ability to understand you're not always going to get it right. And, you know, I quoted Michael Jordan and, and, and um, Tiger Woods before. These guys have, uh, I'm, I'm calling it the Olympic mindset because of you know, my background, but they have that same sporting mentality, that same Olympic mindset, if you like. And I'm not always going to get it right. And people are going to criticise me. But you know what? They're not me. They don't know what I'm thinking. They're not going what I'm doing. Let them say what they're going to say they'll criticize from what they're wearing to what they're doing. And I'll give you another example. Um, and this is going back to, I'm gonna quote Yoda. I mean, my dad. <laughs> 1985 um, was a big year for me. I was running really well and I broke the British record and I was starting to earn some you know, good money from sport. And my carrot on the end of the stick for 1995 was to make enough money to buy myself my first Mercedes. And I wanted the Mercedes 190E. Um, back then, it was one of the bad boys to have. The one to have was a 190E 2.5 valve Cosworth, which I did end up with, but the first one was a 190. And anyway, oh, yeah, I used to go on about it. Dad, I want to get this car, I want to get this car, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That was my carrot for that season. At the end of the year, I'm going to treat myself and then buy this, 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 this Merc. Gets to the point, I've had a great season. I've, you know, accumulated enough funds to be able to go and, and buy this car. It's taking me old man with me. Now, now my old man has known from that whole year, the first thing every morning when I woke up, 190E, and then I'd get on with the rest of my day. And the last thing at night, 190E, and I'd fall asleep. He knew from day one, every other phrase I said was Mercedes-Benz 190E. We're going to pick the car up. I found one this and that, and my dad, dad, you know, I'm a driver. And my dad goes, why do you want this car anyway? And I went, sorry? I said, dad. You know I love this car. It's, you know, at the time, it's what a dream car. It's this, uh, blah, 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 blah. I can't wait to get it. This now, I've looked at this, that, blah, blah, blah. He went, oh, that's fine. I went, why did you ask that? And he says, it's just, I want to tell you something. He says, I want to make sure you're getting this for the right reason. He says, because there's two types of people in this world. You're going to go and get this car um, and you're going to be driving around, lording it around in your 190, thinking that, you know, you're the mutts nuts and you're really, and he goes, and, you know, personally, you've worked your, you know, your socks off. You deserve it. He said 50% of the people are going to have the same attitude as me. Good on him. He's running for his country. He's, you know, he's, he's earning some money. Good on him. Good on lads. Yeah, you know, that's a bit of an inspiration for me. It's given me motivation, whatever. The other 50% are going to go, oh, flash kit. Look at him thinking who he is, lording it around in his fancy car, blah, 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 blah. He says, if you listen to them, sell it and go and buy yourself a much cheaper car, that lot are going to go, yeah, he's one of us. And the other 50% are going to go, what an idiot. He's only one. Well, so do it for the right reasons. Do it for you. Don't ever do it for anybody else because you're never going to please 
all the people all the time. And that goes back to the same with this situation. I was never, because if I had given up, I'm sure there would have been people who have gone, oh, I'd never given up, I would have carried on to yeah. the finish line. <laughs> so it's so a wonderful thing. Absolutely. So I do what was, or I did what was right for me. Yeah. It wasn't planned. It was instinct. At that moment in time, um, I did what, you knew to be right. Knew to be right in my world. Not that I knew to be right, but I knew would help me get over that and continue because, you know, that was a massive blow. I dedicated all my life. You know, I'd got myself in great shape. That was the Olympic Games where I should have won a couple of medals. You know, I've never won an Olympic medal. I will never win an Olympic medal. I can't go back in time and and change that and it's the biggest I won't say regret because disappointment in my athletics career is that I'm not an Olympic medalist I would give up won the world European come I won everything apart from Olympic games I would give all those gold medals up for an Olympic bronze medal just for one Olympic medal because that's the one thing that I haven't got and I can't, I've never touched an Olympic medal and I vowed before then that the first Olympic medal that I will touch will be my own I've never won one. I don't ever want to touch an Olympic medal because I, the first one I wanted to touch was my own. I remember being at an event with Roger Black and he brought his two medals on in this and that. And I was like, oh, no, you know, and he understood it. He said, Derek, I get it. You know, and he smiled. And, you know, and I said, mate, um, you know, and I generally completely chuffed for him. Two silvers in, in um, 96 in Atlanta. Um, to me, one of them is a gold because he was up against Michael Johnson, who was absolutely oh, yeah. unbeatable. Doesn't count. <laughs> it doesn't count. It's like racing Usain Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think an interesting point for me, and I am going to use the word failure because I think too many people are scared to use the word and there's nothing mm. wrong with it. As you've already said, failure drives you. Failure helps you to improve. So despite the failure in that race, did you leave the track with any regrets? Not at all. No regrets. I left the track with disappointment. I left the track with a lot of anger. I went through a series of operations after Barcelona, seven operations in 18 months on hamstrings and Achilles tendons and had all these problems. And after the seventh operation, the surgeon who did them all called me to his office and he basically said to me, Derek, it's done, mate. There's not much more I can do for if you, you know, you, you, you're putting yourself through something now that's not going to happen. Give up. Get yourself a normal job and stop putting yourself through this. You're never going to compete for your country again. Three years later, I sent him a photograph of me playing basketball for England. And I actually personalised it and I put on it, um, Dr. Cobb, um, thank you for your confidence, signed Derek Redmond, international athlete and international basketball player. Um, I think I put a couple of kisses just to really <laughs> rub it in. So what sports um, did you go on to play? So I, I, I went from being an athlete to playing professional basketball to playing for England. Um, Two months after my first and only um, England call-up in basketball, I quit. And I decided because I wanted to be the first person to compete for their country in three sports. A couple have done it in two. No one had ever done it in three. So I started playing local league rugby. Um, then got picked professionally to play for Coventry. Um, got into sevens in a big way. Played a lot of sevens. Tried out for England sevens team on two occasions, but never made it. So I've been professional in three sports, competing for my country in two. Got out of professional sport completely because I was now getting a bit older and goodness knows what. Continued in sport, got into racing motorbikes, had a team and we became national champions uh, endurance racing. Got out of that, got into kickboxing, became national champion for my weight and, and category at, at kickboxing. I'm now in my 40s. I was 47 when I did that. 
Um, then I got into boxing. And then three years ago, at the age of 53, I turned semi-pro. Um, and I'm still a semi-pro boxer, not been beaten yet. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got involved in other sports. And it's not because I'm the best sportsman and I'm great at all these sports. It's because I've just kind of got that attitude where I am going to be, you know, I'm, I, I just don't give up. And, Do you yeah. find that you get through, have you ever heard of the Kubler-Ross yes. curve, change curve? Yeah, yeah. Grief cycle? Grief cycle, seven stages of grief, I think it is, isn't yeah. it? So yeah, what, yeah. The, the Kubler-Ross one is the five stages, which is denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Mm-hmm. Are you the type of person to very quickly get through that cycle? Because it being um, like you are very adaptable. I am adaptable. And it's funny because I have something very similar of a, a, a seven-stage um, change game. And I talk about it from coming out of professional sport into the world of business. Sorry, Dominic, the injury is too bad. It's, your career's over or you're just not good enough. We're not going to resign you. Whatever the case may, may be. Nah, I'll go and get a second opinion or I'll go and try a team down the road. And when you continue hearing that, let's say it's the team saying you're not you know, good enough or whatever, you know, after a while you go down a division, down a division, and you might steal a couple of more seasons, but at a much lower level. But then you get to what I call the next stage is realisation. It is over, you know, and then, you know, once you realise it's, it's over, you then get into that panic stages of what do I do now? What do I do now? And there's a couple of stages where I work for you. And you go through these stages where, you know, one of them I call experimentation, where you're trying things and, you know, you've got people saying, hey, you know, yeah, good football career. Now I've got the next best thing. It's a self-massaging sponge that all footballers are going to be wanting. And you just strap it on your leg, leave it. It does your leg and up you go, oh, yeah, invest money into that. And it fails. Oh, I tell you what, Dom, I've got this thing, this bit of gym equipment. And you try all these different things and you're basically throwing mud at the wall to see what sticks. And you're still in that panicking stage. And then, then you get out of that and you, you find something that hits you here first more than it does your wallet. And that's the thing, because as a top sports person, you want to be the best in our sport. And as soon as we have to make that transfer of sport to business, we want to be the best. But one of the frightening things is when, all your school, uh, when you left school and all your schoolmates left school, they went straight into work. You went into professional football. When you came out of football, they are now managers, directors, owners of businesses. You are now, from a business point of view, as experienced as they were when they left school. And they've got 10, 12, 15 years on you because that was the route that they took. And that's quite frightening because you've got no work, real work experience of managing people. You know, you've been managers of football alone. You've played in teams and you've traveled. That's great. But all of a sudden now... Oh my god you know what do i do and it's and it's that it's, and that's why you start throwing all these bits of mud at the wall and seeing what sticks and then you get to a point where your ego kind of switches off because you do go through that don't you know who i am pro so don't you know what i've done you might be the manager of you've definitely said that haven't you? yeah <laughs> yeah my wife would go nobody <laughs> you're the idiot who's putting the bins out tonight as you but you go through that in your mind and, and then, you, then you get to a point, which is acceptance, where what you did is exactly that. That's what you did. And I got into the speaking world and, uh, and what I'm doing now and, the, you know, um, business performance stuff. I now want to be judged on what I'm doing now, not what I used to do. Yeah. That is just has given me a vehicle to be able to do what I'm doing now. And I can accept what I'm who I am and what I'm doing now. Because that athlete 
retired 30 odd years ago there's been three generations of athletes that have performed as well have performed better you know i no longer hold the british record i'm not the fastest man this country's ever had i think i'm down to fifth and that will continue to drop it's never going to go back up you know in years to come it'll be six it'll be seventh it'll be eighth it'll be ninth it'll be tenth you know my world ranking is uh, on all times as, as you know i was in the top whatever it was it's, it's 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 gonna happen, you know, and you you accept all that sort of. And I'm happy of who I am now. The former, previous, you know, right? I want to be known for who, what I'm doing now, what I've done. So, and you do go through that. So for the first time, it took me seven years, um, and I went through a lot, including bankruptcy, um, with a business that I had, um, and I went under for a lot, two point seven, um, and then I had to come back from you know from that. Uh, and when I say two point seven, not pounds, millions. <laughs> so, um, and you know, you 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 come out of these things, but it was another learning How experience. How did that feel at the time? Oh, just felt just as bad as it was in Barcelona. Of course, it is. You know, it, 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 you know. Um, did you reach out to people for help, or did you? Um, I had my old man uh, behind me. Um, I used to still speak to my sports psychologist from a mental point of view, and I still took that sports type approach to things. Uh, at that you know after it happened um and that's kind of what changed me to think the way that i think now and i took that same mentality into business because i thought sports and business were completely separate uh, and i wrote a book called sport is a business and business is a sport because i don't think there's a difference between the two um you know uh, the only difference is the activity that you're taking part in the discipline that you're taking part in everything else is the same uh, but it took all of that to realize that and i changed the way that i I say I changed the way. I went back to the way that I that I thought as an athlete because I thought the way you think as a businessman and as, as an entrepreneur was completely different. And then I realised through a very expensive lesson that it wasn't. Uh, and and that's why I, I kind of reverted back. And it was a kind of again something that came from my dad. And when I said I'm going to get into the you know speaking and training world, um, and my dad said, "How are you going to run that business? Because the last one you ran didn't pan out very well for you, did it?" And my, you know, he said it kind of half in jest. And my response was, I don't know, Dad, the only thing I know how to do well is compete. Um, you know, uh, it's what you would want. Run your business the same way you run your athletics business. I was like, yeah. And that's how I came, came to, to do what I'm doing now and, and, and run it in the way that I, that I run the business. And your dad has obviously been successful in his own right. Obviously, yes. he's told me all about his success yeah. in business. Do you want to touch a little on the successes he's had and obviously... The very very popular recipe that most of us, <laughs> including me, absolutely love. Yeah, so my dad um, uh, is now retired, but he's in basically he was in the meat trade. So for the vegetarians and vegans, I apologise. My wife. Um, but he was in the meat trade. So he was born in Trinidad, came over to this country when he was fifteen years of age. Um, he was part of the Windrush generation, although he didn't come over on that particular boat, the Windrush. Um, but he was part of that generation where a lot of Caribbeans, West Indians came over to. The, you know, uh, to England and the UK to seek a better life. Came over as a 15-year-old, um, ended up working as a labourer for a company in, in London that was a, uh, that, that um, supplied uh, and serviced meat processing equipment. Uh, and again, apologies for the vegans and, and, and vegetarians out there. So when we're talking about meat processing equipment, it's all the equipment needed to make burgers, this and that, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and he went from being a, a labourer to being a, a lorry driver, uh, from a lorry driver to being a salesman, to becoming a director, to then setting up his own business in the same trade and, and running his own business, which was became very successful. He sold that, 
bought the name back again, built that up, sold that. Uh, he also had another company that um, supplied meat-based products to pubs, restaurants, hotels, hospitals, anywhere that served food. Um, that was called Simply the Best Foods because he was a massive Chris Eubanks fan and he had about 17, 18 vans on the road naturally, you know, delivering all that stuff. Uh, and the other thing that he was, which you alluded to, he was also a meat technologist. So he was an expert in flavorings and flavors and seasonings for meat-based products. So there's one particular well-known uh, brand of chicken um, that you will know, a, a fast food outlet that is based around chicken and they have a thing called a zinger burger and i'm quite proud to say that that's my dad's recipe that's he amazing. he came up not just him but a team of uh, people him <laughs> they were given the, the the task and the job of developing this new flavor for this particular thing that was called the zinger burger which you all we all love and and and, and hopefully enjoy your dad um, is always outshining you he is <laughs> absolutely beat me in barcelona okay <laughs> What a nightmare. What a nightmare. <laughs> Do you know what? On the subject of parenthood, you know I'm a dad. Yeah. Two, two girls. Um, best thing I've ever done. And it's unbelievable. However, the pressure I feel as a dad is actually greater than the pressure I've ever felt. Yeah. In yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to name drop somebody here that has spoken about you. President Barack Obama. Okay. <laughs> Not very often somebody gets quoted. So Clang, there's a name drop. Stop the interview there. So Derek Redmond bravely making it through with a little help. Moments of euphoria after years of hard work. Moments when the human spirit triumphs over injury. That should have been possible to overcome. That's President Barack Obama talking about you in mm. 1992, particularly with your dad. Yeah. The reason I love that video of you is not the fact you got up and finished the race. It wasn't the grit, the desire, mm. that, that confidence to, to chase down a pack of people with one leg. Mm. It was the story of parenthood. Yeah. It really struck a chord with me. And I get emotional watching it every yeah. time I think of my girls. Yeah. As a dad mm -hmm. and being brought up by such an amazing man, what kind of three things would you like your father to say about you as a dad and as a son? Um, great question. Uh, at the time, I wasn't uh, a dad, so I didn't see what people saw from that point of view now like you being a father and i'm a father to four um so i got um, one lad who's 28 and three girls ranging between 23 and 25. so you know i, I see what people see now when it comes to that father son you know that, that parent child uh, uh relationship so what three things would i you know I, I you know i like to think that my dad will say that you know derek was someone who never gave up and he always you know gave it a hundred percent i'd love him to say that i'm a you know uh i don't think i am but as good a father as he was in in my life and you know it's certainly not for the want of trying um i don't know else what i want him to say he's a multi-millionaire <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i think they're the two things really is is and then the main one is is uh, me trying to be as, as good a father as as i as i possibly can um there's no book as you know to parenthood and to you know so it's fatherhood or, or parenthood and we all learn as we go um and every day every year is a new challenge isn't it and even my kids have all left home we still have our challenges um that you know we live a part of and help them with and, and whatnot and i just hope that i actually hope more that my kids see that i've been a, a as good father as possible as well as as my, as my dad to be honest with you 
um, you know, and do I think I've been as good a father to my kids as as um, my dad is to me? Honestly, no, not because I haven't tried, but he was perfect. I was so fortunate. There are so many people out there that haven't and don't have that stable, safe environment in a family home. And I'm very fortunate to have both my mum and dad were there and have a father who, yes, he was running his own business. So he was a little bit easier. He followed me around the world. And, you know, it was great. Wherever I turned, he was there. People seem to think that Barcelona brought me and my dad together. We was already together. That just typifies the relationship that we have. Not had, that we have. And, you know, he did the equivalent of, of what you saw in Barcelona pretty much every day. He was always there for me. He was always my rock. My dad didn't get too excited about things. So if I ran really well, he'd just pat me back and go, good race. That's like anybody else back flipping down the track naked, you know, cheering, you know, because that's just how he was. If I ran bad, he'd be the first to tell me. Even when I was pretty much on top of the world, he would be there to, you know, to, to give me his honest thoughts and criticisms and, 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 and give me guidance. Do you feel like a big part of your personality and the man you've become and the success you've had is down to trying to impress your dad? Not impress him, but it certainly rubbed off. Um, live up to him, possibly. Be like him, yes. And I'd say it's more that. But, I've, I, you know, I've never gone out to impress my dad because I've done loads of things that he wouldn't be, you know, he's not impressed about. And he tells me, you know, um, whether it be investment in things, whatever, buying car, whatever it may be. Um, choices of girlfriends back in the day, you know, whatever it be, you know, and we all go through that. And believe you me, you've got two girls, don't you? I do. You're going to go through that. <laughs> <laughs> of course they're not. Of course they're not. No, of course they're not. Um, so I've never tried to impress him, be like him, yes, be as successful as him and live up to his standards, yes. Um, and, and that's not a bad a particularly, you know, a particularly bad thing. It's obviously been a really powerful driver to you. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. You know, it's quite funny, literally, my turn to name drop now, uh, not quite President Obama, but I was on the phone to Akabusi the other day and, uh, and Chris knows my dad quite well. And and he says, Derek, you are your dad's child. You are definitely your, you know, your, your the, 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 the apple hasn't fall far from, from, from that tree. He goes, you are your dad. He goes, the legacy of your dad lives in you because I can hear it in you. And, I, and he goes, and I listen to your dad, you, the way you laugh and everything, you are your dad. So I guess that's a good thing. You know, I just don't want to be in the same shape as my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Again, he still beat you in Barcelona. Well, yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> the final thing I, I guess I want to talk to you about is all the success you've had in your life. Not many people get to experience even a taste of the success you've had <coughs> to, from winning medals to representing your country in different sports. Obviously, we've got athletics, we've got rugby, we've got basketball, we've got kickboxing, boxing. <laughs> uh, and obviously, the thing I've discussed with you many times, I'm most impressed with winning gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of learning there. And as a dad, too, you know, four kids, you know, the stories you've told me about you coming together as a family through lockdown and spending all that time together having such an impressive, supportive family at home. What are the three takeaways for leadership in life? Wow. Um, three things that I, 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 would, I would say. Uh, biggest one has got to be that, you know, the, 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 the first thing is, God, if I can narrow it down to three, 
So number one, we'll be having some kind of purpose in life. I believe, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong, that if you don't have that, you just have this spiral where you just, you don't feel any worth to yourself and you're not, you know, and we all have something we can do. We're all not going to be a Jeff Bezos or a Elon Musk or a Richard Branson. I understand that, but we can all have some kind of small impact on somebody in this world and that's got to be worth it you know i do what i do and if i only ever impact and i've been speaking now for 20 odd years i've addressed over a million people if i've only ever helped one person it was all worth it second thing is believing that you can achieve it having that self-belief that you can do that you've got to have that because you're gonna get hits and knockbacks and all you know all the time but you've got to keep on going having that that self-work Third thing I think is comes back down to that communication, talking to people, surround yourself with good people. Um, and if unfortunately it's not your family, try and find people that you can, you know, talk to, you can look up to. I always say to people, try and find some kind of mentor, someone that you can talk to who is on the way or have done what it is that you want to try and you know, try and do because they've been there. They've done it. Listen to them. Soak all that up. Whether it's someone in business who has made gazillions and sold big up, talk to them, ask them questions. So, you know, try and surround yourself with good people. If I had to narrow it down, they would possibly be the three things that I would, I would look at. There are others, but I think, you know, that self-worth, self-belief and, and, and surrounding yourself with good people and, and taking on that good advice. You know, if you only did those three things, it's not a bad start. Derek has been absolutely inspiring to hear your story and get to know you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And I'll see you very soon. Yeah, absolutely. See you soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by NAHT, the School Leaders Union. Don't forget to hang around and listen to our Charity of the Week. It's a short segment at the end of this podcast that explores amazing charities doing sensational work across our country and wider. Thank you for joining us today and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast. As you know, at the end of every episode, we offer a platform to a charity doing amazing work. This week's charity is the Noah's Ark Children's Hospital Charity in Wales and we welcome Erica. Hi Erica, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you? Not too bad, thank you. So can you tell us a little about the Noah's Ark Children's Hospital Charity? Yeah, absolutely. So the Noah's Ark Charity is the official charity of the Noah's Ark Children's Hospital for Wales. It, the hospital is based in Cardiff and it's the only children's hospital in Wales and cares for around 73,000 children every year. The charity was originally set up in the year 2000 uh, to raise money to build the actual hospital itself. So once built, the charity continued to raise funds to equip it with theatre suites, a radiology department, a critical care unit and even a hydrotherapy pool. And today the charity continues to support the hospital in whatever way is needed. So we fund cutting edge equipment and facilities and also fund vital family support services like the play specialist team and emotional support for families. So really, really rewarding work that you do, Erica. Yeah, it is fantastic. I mean, we can be doing anything from um, arranging a birthday party for a long term patient to raising funds for life-saving equipment. That's amazing work, Erica. Um, I don't think I've told you this. Both of my daughters were born in in Cardiff Hospital. I now live in England, as you know, so my son won't be born there. But 
it's amazing work that you're doing there. And I know you've really helped family and friends of mine in the past. Really, really happy to give you a platform today to tell us a little about what's coming up and how we can get involved to help you. My role is working with schools. Um, we love engaging with the children. Um, we love it when schools get involved in fundraising for us. Every year we hold Rainbow Day where the children get to dress up as one of their in one of their favourite colours and it's Bring a Pound to School Day. Um, in September on the 25th, we have a superheroes fun run dash around Pontcana Fields in Cardiff. Um, and also things like Christmas jumper days, any fates or festivals that schools hold, they can always um, fundraise for us. Tell me a little about the work you do in schools, Erica. We do a lot with schools. So again, we can go in, we can tell the children um, a little bit about the hospital and what it is that we do. Um, some children obviously like to know because they may be patients, they may know that they've got an appointment, so they can come and see a friendly face and we, we can al also show them a slideshow of people that they may meet along the way and just make it more, uh, you know a better experience, show them some of the fun things that we can do, make it less scary for them basically. Great, so hopefully we've got some listeners that are engaged and would love to support your organisation. Do you have a website or a way that they can contact you? Our website is noahsarkcharity.org. Um, we're on social media, so please give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Well, I can tell you the Olympic mindset will definitely be following you and, and sharing some of your things going forward. Amazing. Thank you.